Now, scripture teaches, and our confession and our catechisms follow Scripture on this, that God is invisible. Our passage this morning says that God is invisible. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Scripture teaches that God is spirit, and because He is spirit, He is invisible. He is not able to be seen by human eye. So how is it possible to image that which is invisible? Not imagine. Now, how many of you, when you saw the sermon title, you read, Imagining or Imagine uh, the Invisible? Well, it's imaging the invisible. And so we're not talking about imagining. That would be actually a violation of the third commandment. Um, Image. How is Jesus the image of the invisible God? Well, even in heaven, with our glorified bodies and our perfect sinless souls, we will not be able to behold God, to look on Him and see Him in the essence of His being. Hopefully, perhaps in glorified bodies, we'll be able to behold the glory of God. But we will not be able to see God in His essence. That is, as He truly is, as He is known to Himself, we will not be able to see Him that way. Even then, we will only be able to see Him in the way that He makes Himself known to creatures. We will always be limited in seeing God by the fact that we are creatures and He is the Creator. We will never attain to a a divine status. There is no deification of humanity in heaven. We have to be careful that we never erase that distinction between creator and creature. So again, how is it possible that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Well, stepping back for a moment, that's just one aspect of the bigger picture that Paul is painting for us about Jesus in these three verses. The one who is the image of God is also, as Paul puts it in verse 15, 15, the firstborn of all creation. Now there are all kinds of ways to get that wrong in our understanding of the phrase. There's only one way to get it right. And throughout the history of the church, since the, 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 the writing of this passage, people have gotten it wrong. They've gone off into all kinds of error. Well, Paul goes on to say that all things in heaven and on earth were created by him. They were created through him. They were created for him. And virtually all of these prepositions apply to Christ with regard to God's work of creation. And then Paul also says that Jesus is before all things and that all things are held together in him. Paul is using metaphysical language to describe the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Who came down to us, adding to his divine nature a human nature, including body and soul. That's what Paul is trying to convey in this limited, weak, feeble human language. He's attempting to describe the utterly mysterious God who made himself known ultimately in human form. And Paul launched into this hymn of praise about Jesus because in the previous passage, he spoke of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I said hymn of praise there. I don't believe that Paul was taking some sort of pre-Christian hymn and adapting it or adopting it for his own purposes. I don't hold to that. Some people do. I think Paul just simply broke out into song. Because for Paul, theology always leads to doxology. Or better, no, or better, theology is doxology. Paul worshipped God by, through, and as a result of his doctrine of God. And Paul broke out into doxology worship 
in the middle of telling the Colossians that he prayed for them. Telling them what he prayed for them. He's, he's thinking about what he's been praying for them. In the middle of it, he just breaks out into hymn, into praise. And so theology, doctrine, it doesn't or it shouldn't throw a wet blanket on our worship of God. It should compel us to worship Him. It should propel us to worship Him. And so as we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider uh, this thought. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, infallibly makes God known to us so that we might worship and have joy in the triune God forever. Say that again. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, infallibly makes God known to us so that we might worship and have joy in the triune God forever. I've got good news for you. There's only two points to this sermon today. So it's going to be very, very brief. The first point is invisible yet visible. And the second point is uncreated yet born of a creature. Again, invisible yet visible. That's the first point of the sermon. And the second, uncreated yet born of a creature. So let's look at this first part of the sermon today. Invisible yet visible. We are very much an image-based culture. Even more so, I think, than a a generation ago. The advent of smartphones. The advent of having these high-definition screens in your pocket by which you can access all kinds of things. We're very much an image-based, a visual culture. And so when we hear the word image, our first thought is most likely of a photograph. Now it would be dangerous to import that kind of thinking into what Paul says in verse 15 about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, though. And that's because a photographic image is actually a reproduction. It's a two-dimensional reproduction, in the case of a photo, of the original. Now, you may not know this, but in our house hangs a painting by Van Gogh. That is one of his more famous paintings, Irises. It's a beautiful painting. We've had it for not quite 20 years. We got it early in our marriage. We got it for under $100. It was a bargain. It sold in 1987 for $54 million. But somehow we were able to obtain it at a pauper's price. Now... Even the children in the room, they know that there's no way that we possibly have the original hanging on our wall. There's no way we would, uh, there's no way we could. Of course, it's a copy that we have. It's a lithograph. It's just a nice photograph of the original that's now on display at the J. Paul Getty Museum out in Los Angeles. It's it's a, a cheap reproduction, although it's a nice reproduction, I would say. Paul is not saying that Jesus Christ is some sort of reproduction of the Father. The author of Hebrews helps us to understand Paul's meaning. When he says in chapter 1 verse 3 of Hebrews, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Again, the authors of Scripture, both human and divine, they are using limited human language to describe something that is completely unlike us, wholly other, utterly mysterious. But God has condescended. He chose to come down to us. He chose to make himself known to us. And in doing so, he's using our language. He's using concepts that we can uh, understand. That's exactly what's happening in passages such as Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. 
And so rather than being a copy of the original, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is very God of very God who came to us in human form. He's not a facsimile or a copy. How many of you know what a facsimile is? You remember the fax machines? The, the things that were put out by fax machines were terrible in terms of their reproductions of what was actually uh, being sent. Jesus is the physical image of the invisible God. In fact, Jesus is the only permissible image of the invisible God. Any man-made imagery of God is a human being's visual representation of what he thinks God is and violates the third commandment. Jesus is not a copy. He is the living, breathing, actual image of the invisible God. Only God is capable of imaging who he is to human beings. But unlike Jesus, human beings are copies of God. Well, this is what it means that we were created in the image and the likeness of God, as Genesis 1 puts it. That image has been marred by sin, but we are still true image bearers of God. Unlike us, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is truly and fully God in, in his essence. We creatures, we are made in God's image. But we also need to see that, that here, at least, Paul is speaking of Jesus, more precisely of the Son, in these verses before he was incarnate. Verses 15 to 17, he's speaking of the pre-existent Christ, the pre-existent Son, the eternally begotten Son, who was active before the dawn of creation. The Son from all eternity has existed as the image of the invisible God. We might say that the Son exhibits the glory of God to all of creation prior to his incarnation. So G.K. Beale writes this, but the image refers to Christ as pre-existence. Paul is speaking of the eternal relationship of the Son to the Father. Now why is this so important? Why, why spend so much time on a few words in verse 15 of Colossians 1? Well, why did Paul start down this path in the first place? Why did he break out into song talking about things, these metaphysical realities of which we have such a hard time comprehending? So that we're now stretched, to, uh, forced our brains to stretch and think so abstractly and metaphysically about these things. Jesus Christ's imaging the invisible God is directly relinked to the fact that it is in Him that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's thought flows directly from saying that in verse 14 to what he says about Jesus being the image of the invisible God in verse 15. This abstract, difficult-to-contemplate doctrine is essential for our salvation. It's essential to the gospel. What's more, it implies that from before creation, from all eternity, God planned to save us through the incarnation of His Son. The Son, being the image of God, is the basis for human creatures being made in the image of God, which makes it possible for the Son of God to take the form of man. Get your head around that for a second. One theologian puts it this way. I'm going to read it slowly just so we can sort of soak this in. It's a little bit of a longer a quote that I tend to do. But listen to this. In the act of creation, God already had the Christ in mind. In that sense, the creation itself already served as preparation for the incarnation. The world was so created that when it fell, it could again be restored. Humanity was organized under a single head in such a way that, sinning, it could again be gathered together under another head. Adam was so appointed as head that Christ could immediately take his place. 
And all of this was possible because Adam was created in the image of the image of the invisible God. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, uncreated, yet born of a creature. The creation of mankind in the image of the image of God implies that the incarnation of the Son is, for Adam, a future possibility, which is made a reality, or we might even say a consequent necessity, when Adam sins. The potential was there. God already had the plan in place. He's not playing catch-up. God knew Adam was going to sin. The plan is there. Adam is created in the image of the image of the invisible God. Adam sins. The Son of God becomes Messiah. He comes to save his people, made in the form and the likeness of mankind. And so our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, is rooted in the fact that the Son of God is the image of God who would come to save us from our sins. It's precisely because Jesus is the God who became man that we have any hope of forgiveness of our sins. And Paul goes on to say in the second half of verse 15 that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Earlier I said that there were many ways to misinterpret what Paul says when he describes Jesus this way, and only one way to get it right Now, if you rip this phrase out of its context, it could be misinterpreted to mean, and it has been misinterpreted to mean, that Jesus is the first creature of all of God's creatures. However, you can only arrive at that misinterpretation if you wrench that phrase, that one phrase, from its immediate context, which is very clear that Jesus is the creator God who made all things. And so the phrase firstborn of all creation, it does not mean that the Son of God is the first Creature. What does it mean then? What is Paul talking about here? Well, our good friend F.F. Bruce, he writes this. What the title does mean, the title meaning firstborn of creation, what the title does mean is that Christ, existing as he did before all creation, exercises the privilege of primogeniture as Lord of all creation, the divinely appointed heir of all things. Now, Firstborn, in verse 15, it functions as a title for Jesus, the way that it does in Psalm 89, verse 17. We read that together. In fact, y'all read the part that says this, where the Lord says of David, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. David was not the firstborn among his brothers. He was one of the youngest, if not the youngest. He wasn't the first king of Israel. But he is given that title because he's a type of Christ, the primary one in the Old Testament. Prior to the incarnation, the son had the title firstborn of all creation because it was by, through, and for him that all things were created. If Christ has created all things, he cannot possibly be a creature, right? That's the immediate context which dispels the notion that he's the first creature. He's the creator. And if we have a robust distinction between the creator and the creature, we'll never mash those two things together in Jesus. But, or perhaps additionally... The title firstborn also anticipates the birth of the Messiah, the Christ, to the Virgin Mary. The king of all creation, the one who created all things, added a creature's nature to his divine nature by being born of a creature, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit. This God, 
who would be born of the woman in eternity past, was the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now Paul is going to get into this in the next few verses after our sermon passage this morning. So we'll get into it next week, Lord willing. But Paul says in verse 18 that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And in verse 19, he says that he made peace, Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. So what Paul is writing in verses 15 to 17 is... Theologically abstract and difficult as it may be for us, it serves to heighten our sense of gratitude and our willingness, increase our willingness to worship God when we get to verses 18 and following. The infinite and eternal pre-existent Son of God, who is equal with the Father and the Spirit, added a finite human nature to himself so that he could suffer death on the cross, pouring out his blood so that we might be washed clean. The Son was present at creation. But he didn't merely stand by and watch the proceedings. Paul says that by him, all things things were created in heaven and on earth. Everything that is not God is a creature of God. And the Son is the one by whom everything was made. Things seen and unseen were made by him, created by him. Thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities were created by him. Christ is more powerful than the greatest earthly power. He has more authority than the greatest human authority. Kings and presidents and dictators would come cowering before him if he were to appear in glory today. Because they would instinctively know that true authority, authority by whom they were created, has arrived. John says in that most wonderful passage in in John 1, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul says in verse 17 that he is before all things, meaning that the Son existed before creation. But even more importantly, that the Son has always existed. There was never a time when the Son was not. Never was the Father without the Son and the Spirit. And the same can be said about each person of the Trinity. Never was the Son without the Father and the Spirit. Never was the Spirit without the Father and the Son. The three persons are co-eternal with one another. The last phrase in our passage this morning is, And in Him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The Son who would become man holds together or upholds all of creation. Even after creation was plunged into darkness because of sin, the Son upheld it. Even during His incarnation, the Son upheld it. The Son upholds all things by the word of His power. This Son, this eternally existing Son, who is before all things and who created everything, came down to us and joined us in our misery. The infinite united himself to the finite, to finite flesh. The eternal one united himself to that which is subject to time, and he lived under the constraints of time. The one who is very God humbled himself, not considering equality with God something to be clung to, 
And so he abased himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now consider this. Think about this for a moment. Think about human authority. Think about how long it takes for anything to happen. Think about the times when you you have an idea and you bring it to the session. (laughs) And, And it takes us sometimes, well, never days, usually months, sometimes years to, to get back and say, well, you know, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good idea. Or, you know, we, maybe we won't do that. Think about other types of human authority. It takes years and years for people who are lowly and oppressed to gain the attention and concern of those who are in authority so that they take action for help. Think about the, the, the persistent widow in that parable who knocks and knocks and knocks on, on, the, on the judge's door, and he just ignores her, and finally he, he can't take it anymore. And just to, to get rid of her, he listens to her, right? Consider this. It took centuries and a war for slavery to be brought to an end in our land, and millions and millions of human beings made in God's image suffered and died in the meantime. That's human authority looking with indifference upon human beings and their suffering. It took almost 50 years for Roe v. Wade to be overturned and millions and millions of human beings made in the image of God suffered and died in the meantime. Some people suffer for years from diseases or conditions which cause great pain before a doctor finally comes along who's willing to actually listen to them and hear about their pain and decide they're going to do something about it. Human authority is unconcerned and aloof until it's finally compelled by some external force not to be. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God is not aloof and unconcerned about the plight, our plight in this fallen, sin-filled, cursed world. From the moment sin entered into his perfect, good, sinless creation, God came near. He condescended. He didn't avoid us. He simply didn't want to deal with our troubles. He came down to us. He brought great relief in the form of a great promise to those first sinners. The seed of the woman, he said, would crush the head of the serpent, even though that serpent would bite the heel of the son. The Son, through whom, by whom, and in whom all things were created, is not uncaring. He has great concern for those whom He created in His own image. He came to us by becoming one of us, living an obedient life for us, and dying on the cross for us, brothers and sisters. He is concerned. He revealed the invisible God to us by making himself known to us. He drew us to himself by the Holy Spirit and caused us to love him. And being made to know him, being made to love him, we worship him. We worship the invisible God because of the image of God, the Son, who took on human form being made in our likeness in order that he could die in our place on the cross. He did this so that you and I and people like us all around the world would become worshipers of the Most High God. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.
Amen. Let us pray.